invite you to stand as we read our text this morning. I'll read again the larger context. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, and we will have our special focus, of course, on the first half of verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Believe it or not, we finally made it to the very last verse of this letter of Peter to those believers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, what we know today as, as modern Turkey. This will not be, however, our last message as Peter ends, as you note there at the end of verse 18, with a glorious doxology, and we would do well to consider that on its own. But we do come then today to the last of Peter's exhortations. We have had quite of an, an adventure as we've sorted through these adventures, considering what it is that makes up the Christian life. What does the Christian life look like? And we noted that the moral excellence of Christ uh, has been revealed to us in the first chapter. And it's revealed to us in the prophetic word that is the word of God We've seen that men who were moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We've seen that uh, there's a threat to Christians made by those who are in the church but do not speak of the things of the Lord. They twist and distort the scriptures and they bring into the church, we read in chapter 2, of destructive heresies or false teachings as well as Christ-denying lifestyles in which they indulge the flesh and their corrupt desires that despise authority. And now we've been looking at the Christian's hope, the hope of the promised return of Christ, and a hope that even as we look at what's going on in the world around us, we say, we hope <laughs> he comes soon. We say, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Well, verse 18, as I said, brings us to this final exhortation that Peter has for his readers. He ends this entire letter with four commands, four expectations by which believers may lay hold of this promise, may know that they're living in light of the promise of Christ's return, that they will be found ready as they busy themselves with the tasks of serving Christ. The four commands, and I pray that you might almost have them memorized by now, or that we are to be diligent to be found by Christ in peace, 
in peace with him, in peace with God through his sacrifice for us, that we would recognize our spotlessness and blamelessness is not a result of our doing, but Christ has graciously given himself on the cross for our sin, and he replaced that sin with his righteousness, his own spotlessness and blamelessness. And we are to strive with all our might to know that peace and to be found in that righteousness. We are to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. When we think God should jump and do what we think he ought to do, we fail to recognize that he allows things to take time because he wants people to be saved. And one of the reasons for the delay of Christ's return is because of his great patience, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. If you are here today and you've not been walking with the Lord, you are testing the patience of God. It will come to an end, not because God is impatient, but because God has a greater, grander plan. And if you are not in salvation, if you have not come to know salvation, today I say, would you call upon the name of the Lord? But all of God's people are to recognize we live in an era of patience. We sometimes call it the church age. We sometimes refer to these uh, you know, things as, as there was the Old Testament and the New Testament. But let me tell you about the day we live in. This is the day of the patience of God. And he wants us to proclaim the gospel so that all whom he has chosen will come to be saved. We've been challenged to be on our guard against the error of unprincipled men who distort the truth to such an extent that we may begin at times to doubt our own salvation, to even doubt the word of God. Did God really say? And then now today we look at this command to grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I submit to you that these four commands have paralleled four aspects of what it means to live in light of the promises of Christ's return. And so we have these for you as well. We've looked in verse 14 at the purity of his promise. We've looked at the patience of his promise, the protection of his promise. This morning, we'll look at the productiveness of his promise. And if you've been paying attention, there's only been four. And what do you see up there? Five, because... I could not squeeze in the doxology without doing it justice, and so we'll look at the praise of the promise next week. So ultimately, Peter's thrust in this letter has been to remind his readers over and over again. Do you feel like the preacher has been trying to remind you of what Peter has been trying to remind his readers of over and over again? And he doesn't remind them. You don't get reminded of stuff you don't know. You get reminded of the things you do know. You can say very easily, Pastor, we know. We know these things. Well, guess what? We're going to hear them again. We're going to be encouraged by them again. You will be exhorted by them so that we can do what now is aptly stated in our text this morning to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I would submit to you that growth here, this growth is the productiveness of Christ's promise. If you believe Christ is coming again, it will bear fruit in your life. If you do not believe Christ is coming again, I submit to you there will be little or no fruit whatsoever. 
what you believe about Christ's return will have an impact upon how you live. For all of those who live in the light of Christ coming again, these will be found growing in their understanding and in the grace and knowledge of Christ. I want to stop and ask you, when was the last time you truly stopped to think about the idea of growth? It happens all around you. It happens all the time. To watch things grow is actually fascinating. To see a plant that goes from a a, a dry, dead seed to a a seedling to a sprout to maturity where it, it blooms and or bears fruit is an amazing thing. If you uh, are growing things, you go out there every day, and one day there's nothing, and the next day there's a bud, and the day after that there's a zucchini this big. I don't know where they hide. To watch something grow, to watch a caterpillar eat leaves and then spin itself into a cocoon, to remain in there for some days seemingly lifelike only to what? To emerge as a beautiful butterfly is an amazing thing. To see my grandchildren growing bigger and taller and smarter, that's all designed by God. Growth is designed by God. I think back when I was growing up, I was not always as tall as I am now. I don't know if you know that. Truth is, I was actually once taller than I am now, but I'm shrinking for some reason. But that's an illustration for a different sermon, I guess. But I remember in my early teen years, I, I remember waking up in the middle of the night, and I had these deep, aching pains in my thighs. And evidently, one time when I was staying with my grandmother, I was groaning, and she came into my room in the middle of the night, and, and she started rubbing my thighs. I'm like, what's going on? And she said, you're, you're growing. These are growing pains. These cramps that you feel, they're they're growing pains, and they're going to, uh, it just means you're getting taller and bigger. And, you know, sure enough, that very summer, I, my shoes got too small and my pants got too short because I was going through, what do we call them? Growing pains. And while I could have lived without the growing pains, I was like any other child. I wanted to what? To grow up. And so it was just part and parcel. And I submit to you that what is true of us physically And what we see in the physical world around us is true spiritually. Every believer, if he or she is truly walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, wants to grow up in him. And sometimes it happens seemingly seamlessly, and sometimes it comes with great growing pains. Such pains can take a variety of forms. We begin to see we need to let go of some attitude or action that we once held on to so tightly because all it's doing is poisoning us. We see God bring into our lives new desires and passions that align with his will, and obviously at one time were not our will. But here's the truth. The Lord works into the lives of his people, those who long for and anticipate his coming, maturity. He works in them a growth, a maturity that reveals itself. What's the fruit of maturity? What's the fruit of growing in Christ? Well, we call it sanctification, that big word, that process of simply being, this will help you more sanctified. Well, what does that mean? It means that more and more you are reflecting the fruit of Christ. 
You are, you are saying the words that Christ would say. You are thinking the thoughts that Christ would think. You are doing the things that Christ would do on this earth. That's called sanctification. It's becoming more holy in our conduct and becoming godly. In 2 Peter 3, it's called our attention to this promise of Christ coming again. And in verses 1 through 10, we noted the certainty of Christ's return, that he is coming. And in verses 11 through 18, now the focus is on the conduct of those who live in light of that return. After noting that, that one of the purposes of Christ's return, this is not the exciting, well, it is exciting. One of the purposes, one reason why Christ is going to return is to destroy this present heaven and earth because of its fallenness and sinfulness. But then Peter summarizes something that would take us through the rest of the letter in in verse 11. I just want to point this out. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, since this world and all its sinfulness and its corruption and its lack of focus on Christ, since it's all going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? I love the phrase here. What sort of people ought you to be? It means that in light of realizing that Christ is coming again, how astonishingly different and distinguished your life should be. Your life should stand out like a star in the, in the dark night sky. It should be that which is easily distinguished from the rest of the world. It's a reminder, as Peter has already told these readers back in his first letter, that we reside in this world as aliens. We have a lot of talk about aliens, illegal aliens, illegal immigrants coming over. They they, uh, are foreigners. They have a different language. They have different customs. Well, we are the aliens, If you are in Christ, there's something different about us. We are to be to the world strange and not because of something other than Christ. We do not have the same customs of this world. We are not speaking the same language of this world. Yes, I speak English and most uh, people might speak English, but that's not the language I'm talking about. I'm talking of a spiritual language that, uh, that speaks of God's righteousness and speaks in terms of, of God speak, not human speak. This world is not our home. And so to live in co- holy conduct and godliness has to mean that we're unique, that we're different, that we're not different in some awkward way, but in a way that reflects what Christ is like. Can I tell you something about Christ? And you, read, you might need to go and read the Gospels to see this, which would be a good thing. Christ was not awkward. Now, some of you might think, well, wait a minute. He, he certainly did some things that the Pharisees didn't like and everybody around him didn't like. He was never awkward about it. He just did what he was supposed to do and he did it well and he never did it bad and he never did it to uh, in any manner other than that which brought ultimate glory to God. There's never awkwardness in bringing glory to God. There's only awkwardness in not bringing glory to God. And so here Christ is, is anything but awkward. Others might have felt awkward around him, but that's just a reflection of their sinfulness. 
And so we are to be increasingly and boldly reflecting the attitudes and actions of Christ. And that's what Peter has been stressing in these final four commands. And so we consider the last of these commands, the fourth one uh, of these commands, under the title, The Productiveness of His Promise. And we read in verse 18 in the first half, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you are living in light of the promise of his return, then this is both a command to and a striving for productiveness, the producing of spiritual fruit. God has every expectation to see fruit in your life. The pastor and elders have every expectation to see fruit in your life. Your spouse or your your parents or your children, if you are in Christ, have every right to expect fruit in your life. Are you revealing it? Before we consider our text, let me remind you that Peter began this letter with a call to grow. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, I'll just read this for you. You've heard it a few dozen times. For if these qualities, those Christ-like attributes of verses 5 through 7, if these qualities, the moral excellence of Christ, are yours and are what? Do you remember what it says? And are increasing, which is, are they growing? If they're growing, they render you neither useless, now listen to this word, nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you are growing in Christ, you are fruitful. And there's the call. Believers are called to pursue growing in the experience of the grace and the experience of the knowledge of Christ. Why? Why is this so important to Peter in this moment? Because the only way to become doctrinally stable, so as to keep yourself from stumbling into the air of false teachers, is to be growing in grace and knowledge. If you're not growing in grace and knowledge, whatever that may be, and we'll get to that, you will find yourself doubting God's word. And so we are called to grow. And from this verse then, I offer you four observations that help us understand how to be productive in growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And we begin with the contrast. And there's just one little word for the contrast. Do you see what it is? The word but. That is a, a a word of contrast. It captures our attention. But what is this in contrast to? We must look back up to verse 17 and note this with me. We read in verse 17, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Then Peter says, but grow. He's making a contrast. He's providing to us the remedy against falling from our steadfastness, and he does it in way of stating a positive duty. This is what you get to do. This is what you should long to do. This is what is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. And so I say to you that the best defense against false teaching that would lead to your own doubt and and uncertainty is the constant pursuit of spiritual growth. Remember that to fall from one's own steadfastness, as it says in verse 17, does, does not mean to lose your salvation. It means to lose your confidence to lose your grounding in the person and work of what Christ has accomplished for us as revealed in the word. Perhaps you've experienced unsteady Christians before, those who doubt and they're like the wave of the wind uh, driven here and there and to and fro. 
Perhaps you know yourself to be an unsteady Christian because of so much false teaching and misinformation about the person and work of Christ. Many to whom even Peter was writing were losing confidence in the word of God. The first lie that was ever uttered was uttered to Adam and Eve. And it was what did God really say? This is the very same tactic that's used by false teachers today. Did God really say Jesus is coming again? I, I could have this to be a participation mode, okay? So if I were to say that, you could say amen, right? Did God really say Jesus is coming again? It has been so long true, but God said it, and therefore we believe it. Did God really say that his people are to live holy lives? More enthusiasm, please. Thank you. Did God really say that sexual intimacy is for the marriage bed alone? Did God really say there are only two genders? Did God really say homosexuality is a sin? Did God really say the Son of God is truly God? Did God really say that he chooses his people before the foundation, that they would be holy and blameless? Too many in the church have fallen prey to the manipulation of false teachers and thus are not sure about those things, not steadfast on those things, not sound in their understanding. So how does such a person regain that steadfastness? How do we keep that steadfastness in God and his word? And it brings us to our second observation. It is that we must grow, grow in Christ. It is so important that God comes along in his holy word and says, I command you to grow. I, I'm having this thought about um, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus was dead. He couldn't do anything. And he commanded him to come forth. And what did Lazarus do? If you, know, if you read the story, it's fascinating, right? You say, well, he comes forth. How did he come forth? All wrapped up and bound. He could do nothing else because the king of kings and the Lord of lords said, Lazarus, come forth. And that's all that could happen. And now that same Lord says to us, grow. And so the expectation is what? I better grow. If I'm not, I'm defying the king of the universe. The command to grow. The remedy to spiritual being spiritually stunted of being shrinking in your confidence is found in that simple command to grow and specifically to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Beloved, our God expects you to grow. At the time Peter gave his first readers this exhortation to grow, they were in all sorts of bad places. They were suffering from all sorts of persecutions. There was nothing flippant. There was nothing easy about pledging allegiance to Christ in the first century. In fact, at the time, it could cost you your family. It could cost you your possessions. It could cost you your life. Some of you are aware at the time that Peter wrote this, that, uh, that Nero who there was a fire in Rome, and he was the cause of it and tried to get everybody's eyes off of him. He blamed the Christians, and so then they started taking Christians and lighting them on fire. 
and he would use them even to, to line his chariot race course at night. He would put Christians along and cover them with pitch and light them on fire. This is what these believers were being aware of. This could happen. On top of that, there are now false teachers coming along and distorting the truth of God's word. Christ isn't really coming again. God didn't really create the world. It's all been the same forever and ever. It is into these circumstances that Peter utters this last command of his letter, a command that literally means to grow and to keep on growing and to never stop growing, to be relentlessly growing in Christ. The sentence in the original Greek actually begins with the verb, not that that preposition, but it actually reads this way, grow, but in grace and knowledge of our Lord. It starts with the command. It's in the emphatic position. It should be that those words echo in our ears every day. My goal, my job is to grow in Christ. To grow in Christ carries some implications with it. The first and foremost being this, that you are born again. You cannot grow if you're not born again. Because those who are not born again are dead in their trespasses and sins. But God, according to Ephesians 2.4, made us alive together with Christ. And to be alive in Christ implies now what? That you will grow. Peter's already told his readers this. Recall back in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 of, of this text we've been looking at. And he said this, seeing that his, Jesus' divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Your Savior is not stingy. And he has granted to you everything you need to make it through this life in a way that brings him glory. Well, it's sometimes hard. Our flesh gets in the way. Sometimes people get in our way. Sometimes government might get in our way. But never doubt this promise. Everything you need to grow, everything you need to live for Jesus is amply supplied to you. The Lord has granted to you new life, and with new life comes growth. With new life comes progress. What does that growth look like? What do the blooms of this Christian life look like? Well, you've heard it many times, so let me just remind you once again by way of reminder. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Now, for this very reason also, that is what reason? What reason is it, Peter? Because we've been granted everything necessary for Christian growth that we just read up in verse 3. Applying all diligence, there's that word, in your faith supply moral excellence, the very moral excellence of Christ, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. That's the fruit. Do you see these things growing in your life? Why would it be so important to Peter to see these, this growth? Because he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, growing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he telling you to grow in? Grow in the knowledge.
church of Jesus Christ. How do I know that I'm growing? Because I'm diligent to see these things manifest in my life. The Lord grants every believer everything necessary to grow and serve the Lord Jesus Christ with a proper intake of spiritual food, that is through the hearing and the reading and the studying of the word and exercise, which is the doing of the word, believers are enabled and expected to grow. You lack nothing. I'm trying, trying to take away every excuse that you could give me. You have no excuse not to grow if you are in Christ. Because to say you have an excuse is to say God hasn't given you everything you need. The command to grow and to keep on growing implies that there's nothing static about this life. Nothing inactive in the spiritual life. The word grow speaks literally of advancing, of progressing in order to increase. It means to enlarge. It means to grow up. This means that for those of us who are truly growing in Christ, we're not remaining the same. I am not the same person that I was when I first came to know the Lord back on April 28, 1984. I'm not even the same Christian I was a year ago. If I'm growing in Christ, I'm constantly becoming more like Christ and less like my, my sinful self. <clears throat> we are constantly to be changing. We're constantly maturing. God does not want us to remain as babes in Christ. It is not a healthy thing to say, I'm a babe in Christ. He expects us to grow so that the words of Ephesians 4.14 would be true, where Paul wrote, we are no longer to be children. Stop being children. Grow up. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. What is he saying? You are to be mature and not fall prey to false teachers and not to give in to your flesh, but to constantly grow in Christ-likeness. Why should we desire such growth? Because it's what God promises will bring to us spiritual stability and strength. If you want to avoid falling prey to false teachers, then make sure you're maturing in Christ. The Greek verb to grow is an active command, a call to pursue growth always. The catechism asks the question, you, some of you are familiar with the Westminster Catechism that begins with what question? What is the chief end of man? And some of you know the answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I would say that it's safe to answer that same question another way. What is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we might enjoy him forever. And to do that, we must each actively pursue those things that allow for growth, something that pastors and theologians refer to as the means of grace. You've probably heard this term, what, what are the means of grace? The means of grace in which we grow and understand more of the grace and knowledge of Christ. And let me just offer you what are some of these means of grace. This is kind of an applicational thing for you. How do we grow in Christ? Well, we must first be filled with the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to demonstrate our dependence and our obedience to God's Word. It is the Spirit of God that Jesus said will lead us into all truth. All knowledge. I can't know Christ 
apart from the Spirit of God. And so I need to be filled with the Spirit. I need to be a believer walking with the Lord, not quenching the Spirit, not squelching the Spirit, but living by the Spirit of God. We yield ourselves to the Spirit's leading and teaching us of God's Word. Additionally, being filled with the Spirit means confessing all known sin. It means serving God's church in the power of the Spirit rather than in one's own strength. We get very, we're on dangerous ground when we say, I will only serve the church in ways in which I know I can be comfortable in. That's in your own strength. Let the Lord push you outside of your comfort zone and let the Spirit of God have his work in you. To be filled with the Spirit is to be committed to sharing the gospel with the lost. How are you doing? To be filled with the Spirit ultimately is to grow in Christ. Well, a second means of grace is we must be feeding on the Word of God. We must be feeding on the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow and respect the salvation. We must feed ourselves, beloved, on spiritually nutritious food. And that's the Word of God. We constantly read, study, listen, memorize, meditate on the Word of God. That's what causes the growth. So if you're lax in your reading or listening or studying or memorizing or meditating on the word of God, I can assure you your growth is at best stunted. We are called by in the means of grace to have fellowship with God and his people. We must be in fellowship with God through prayer and in fellowship with God's people through the gathering ourselves together for the purpose of devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching That's the word of God to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Number four, we must not fret our frailties and fatiguing trials. How's that? We must not fret our frailties and fatiguing trials. I've been reading a book that has really been an encouragement to me as I recognize my weaknesses. You know what you want to do when you have a weakness? You know what most of us want to do when we have a weakness? We want to cover it up. We want to try to mask it somehow. We don't want to give anybody the indication that we're weak. And we do that in our relationship to God. I don't want God to know that I'm weak. Uh, Too late, right? But we forget it. And you know the wonderful thing about weaknesses? I'm going to give you some, I hope this is joyful. When you say, God, I am so weak in this. My flesh is weak. My mind is weak in this. That's your opportunity to say, God, I got to be utterly dependent upon you because I can't do this on my own. So your weaknesses, your frailties, and those trials that come over and over again are not meant to destroy you. They're meant to turn you to look to God so that through them, as you're looking to God, what happens? You grow. You grow. 2 Corinthians 12, 19, Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. For power, my power, Jesus says, is perfected in weakness. My power, Jesus says to us, is perfected in weakness. And Paul's response wasn't, I don't want you to know my weaknesses. I got to conquer these weaknesses. He says this, listen, most gladly. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Just 
pour it out to the Lord. I'm so glad that I'm weak in this area so that I will not depend upon myself but look to you and to you alone for the victory. 2 Corinthians 4 and 17, another familiar verse, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. My fatiguing trials, those momentary light afflictions, those things that just keep beating me, beating me, beating me down. The world wants to see me defeated, but Christ says I will use it to exalt you. I will use it to display my glory. The world thinks you're foolish and the world thinks you're weak, but there will be a day when I will put you along with the entire church on display as the, as the wonderful fulfillment of the mystery of the church. We must not fret our frailties and fatiguing trials. Number five, we must be faithful in ministry. We must be faithful in ministry. Our ministry and service to one another, listen, is the gymnasium in which God allows us to exercise and see our growth and maturity. This is the gymnasium. Our interactions with one another is the exercise room in which we can say, am I, am I growing? I know uh, Brother Justin has been saying he's going to get me into the, the weight room, start working on, I do all the bike riding. He's like, okay, let's buff you up a little bit. But how, how would you measure that? I have no clue. I, this is how, how ignorant I am of weightlifting. So I'll, uh, maybe I'll, be, I'll exaggerate just to make myself look good because I want you to know how weak I am, okay? But he said, okay, here, uh, I want you to, to bench press 200 pounds. I don't even know if that's possible, okay? So I do 200 pounds. And if, if I can do that, I mean, he's not going to have me do that for, for six months. What would he do? He'd keep adding weight to it. And so how would I know if I'm growing? Because after a couple weeks, I'd be doing what? 225 or 250, and I don't even know if I'm way beyond myself at this point. But anyway, okay, okay. There's always someone to correct the pastor. Thank you, okay? But the idea is to be faithful in the workout room. And so as you're in there, you start seeing, yes, I'm, I'm, bench, I'm bench pressing more. I'm running further. I'm going faster in all of this. And in this case, second, or 1 Corinthians 4, 2, in this case, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. You are faithful to do it over and over again. And here's the promise. If you will be faithful to serve God's people, you will see yourself grow. And then finally, we must be family. We must be family, the family of God, Christ Jesus. Can I just? We say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But can I tell you, the Western church, the American church, we are so narcissistic. We think everything's about us as individuals. And while Jesus does love us, May I remind you that in Ephesians chapter 5, we're told that Jesus loves the church. He loves this, this organism, this puzzle that's being put together. Uh, our brother yesterday called it this tapestry of hope. It's being stitched and weaved together by Christ himself. And Christ loves the church. And he gave himself up for the church. And Paul refers to the church as God's 
household in Ephesians 2.18. God's house. What does that mean? God's the father. We are the children, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have the best big brother ever. Now he's called the elder brother. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are expected to grow in and through the local church family. And just like we're seeing these, these kids grow up, I mean, uh, watching the Yamaji kids or, uh, or the Collins kids. I mean, we brought members on, and I, I was saying, I knew Nick and Zach before, well, when they were still in the womb. I knew they were coming. And here they are, members of the church. We see the growth. That's the family. We should see the spiritual growth in one another. That's the call. That's the expectation. We are to pursue and be diligent to grow. We must also know that ultimately our growth is something that God does in and through us. We can't make ourselves grow, but we are diligent to see all the pieces come that God would bring the increase. And if you know anything about 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, I planted, Apollos watered, but God brought what? The increase. Literally, he brought the growth. This is the very heart of Paul's words in Philippians 1.6 when he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. It will come to full maturity until the day of Christ. While God is sovereign in our growth, he actually calls us to pursue the means of grace. These things that we have identified, the reading of our Bible, of prayer, fellowship with the saints, our labors in serving one another in the church, these are the vehicles, the means that he uses to grow us. To borrow from the language of Paul from Philippians 2.12, we know that one. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? Well, we could say here that it's as if Peter is saying to us, work out your salvation by growing. For it is God who is working growth in you. Some of you have stopped growing. Some of you have become stagnant in your spiritual life. Some of us perhaps are stale. And so I simply say whatever is keeping you from reading your Bible, whatever is keeping you from prayer, whatever is keeping you from right fellowship and service, identify it, repent of it, and stop and stop it that begin afresh in your pursuit of growing in Christ but I get ahead of myself we have this command to grow right but grow that's as far as we've gotten you know the rest of the story but let's go now what are we to grow in and that's our third point the content we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ I love the twofold nature of the content how easy is that? Here's your test. What are we to grow in? Grace and knowledge. Everybody's going to pass the test, at least at least that, that aspect of it, right? We're to grow in both grace and knowledge. But why grace and knowledge? Because without one, the other will not yield a healthy Christian. I want you to think about this. You will not grow as a healthy Christian if all you have is grace without knowledge or all you have is knowledge without grace. I couldn't say it any better than Spurgeon, so let me tell you what Spurgeon said. How easy it is to grow in knowledge, but not in grace. All of us know far more of the Bible than we really live, right? Knowledge without grace is a terrible weapon, and grace without knowledge can be very shallow. 
But when we combine grace and knowledge, we have a marvelous tool for building our lives and for building the church. So we need both. And so let us look at these two qualities, beginning with grace. Beloved, it is because of God's grace and mercy that your sins are forgiven. It is by God's grace that we are saved. And as God's children, we are to recognize it and to rehearse it, that I'm not saved by anything that I have done. The Puritan Richard Baxter wrote, Christ, or Jesus Christ came to pardon sin and to cover the infirmities of his servants and to cast them behind his back into the depth of the sea and to bury them in his grave. Oh, that's grace. They're gone. This is great grace, and we do, rem- we do well to remember all that God has done for us in Christ, that he, all that he has graciously granted us. If we're to mature in Christ, we must recognize his grace. And then recognizing grace, we look to God's word. We commune with Christ in, in prayer so that we might increase in our knowledge of him. And what is grace? Grace is simply the undeserved, unmerited favor of God bestowed upon guilty sinners. Grace is the unmerited, I'm getting getting ahead of myself here, the unmerited favor of God freely bestowed upon guilty sinners. It implies you know that you're a guilty sinner and you don't deserve anything that's good. Do you know what you don't even deserve today? The air that you're breathing, it belongs to God. You are here by God's grace. Grace is the granting of those who were intent on their hell-bound race that could never do anything to earn uh, their, their own salvation, but to grant them his unmerited favor. But let us delve a bit deeper into this thing we call grace. No, we're, you're getting ahead of me here. Let's go back for a minute. There's three things I'd have you dwell upon, and the first is to recognize sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. Sovereign grace means to be or sovereign means to be in full control. It means to reign completely. It means that you have full determination and plan over all things. God's grace is sovereign. It is the unmerited favor of God that has planned our redemption from sin's penalty and power and presence. And he did this even before the world began. Before you could do anything, he already planned it all. According to Ephesians 1.4 and 1.6, we read that God chose us by himself, for himself, without reference to anything we would do or could do, so that our salvation would be entirely to the praise of the glory of his grace, his sovereign grace. But in addition to sovereign grace, I want you to understand their sustaining grace. Not only are we saved by sovereign grace, but we are sanctified. We are brought more and more into the likeness of Christ in thought and deed by the sustaining, unfair, unmerited favor of God. This life is a spiritually treacherous journey. Some of the ladies are reading through Pilgrim's Progress, and there are portions where a Christian identifies he's going through some spiritually perilous lands. How does he get through it? By his own strength? By the sustaining grace of God. As John Newton has so aptly penned, maybe you've heard this before, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. 
his grace hath brought me safe thus far. And grace, sustaining, continuing, unending grace will do what? Will lead me home. The third consideration of grace, not only is it sovereign, not only is it sustaining, but it is sufficient grace. Sufficient grace. In the words of Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am convinced, I am fully persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That is sufficient grace. I don't feel like at times that God is on my side. I don't know if God is present in the way that I feel, but God has promised. God has said, I am sufficient for you. I will not let my beloved go. I will not let you falter and fall. I will carry you, and I am sufficient for the task. It's one thing to promise somebody that you will help them through a problem, but if you don't have the means to help them through the problem, you're promise of help is insufficient. God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all that we ask or think. To him be the glory. The grace of God is sufficient to deliver us from every demon, every disease. It is able to deliver us from death and every sinful man. Jesus has conquered it all. And so there is no need, there is no circumstance, there is no predicament to be found in which for the believer there is not sufficient, abundant grace at our disposal. Like the deep, deep love of Jesus, so too is the grace of God, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean over me. Drown me, Lord, in the sufficiency of your grace and in the, the sovereignty of your grace. What does all of this mean? Sovereign, sustaining, sufficient grace. It means that we come by faith and are saved by grace. It means that we grow in holy conduct and godliness. It means that Christ's likeness comes to us by grace. And then as we reflect on the depth and the vastness and the wonder of the grace of God in our lives, what's the result? You grow. You want to grow in Christ? Look at the grace of God. But we're not only called to grow in grace, we're called to grow in knowledge. The word knowledge there is a word that many of you have heard, the Greek word gnosko. And it means to have an intimate, keen knowledge, awareness of someone. While everything for us begins with grace, God expects us not only to grow in grace, but here it says in our text to grow in knowledge. Knowledge is critical in order for the believer to mature. The word knowledge speaks again of that personal, intimate knowledge that grows deeper and deeper as time goes on. Whatever you know about Christ today, let me tell you, you haven't begun to scratch the surface. 
Some of us have walked with the Lord for decades. And the more that you walk with Christ, the more you come to recognize, I don't really know that much about Christ. When you first come to Christ, you think you got it all figured out. And as you plumb the depths of what it means to know Christ, you come to recognize that you are finite in your knowledge. Christ is infinite. The idea of getting to know more and more about Christ is in view here. This is the essence of the Christian life, to know more about him. God, I know this much about him. Today, I want to know this much about him. And tomorrow, I want to know more about him. It's the essence and definition of eternal life. Did you know that? What is eternal life? What is eternal life? Well, it's spending eternity with, with Jesus in heaven. Well, that's true. But you know what Jesus said is eternal life? That would be a better definition, right? What did Jesus say is true about eternal life? John 17, 3. This is eternal life, the words of Christ, that they may know, gnosko, you. They may grow in their knowledge and understanding and their intimacy of you, the only true God, and they may grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. Why know Jesus? Well, know him more. I am knowing him more. Excel's going. Keep on going. Is it any wonder that Peter commands believers to grow in knowledge? Knowledge speaks of that which is acquired by learning and effort and experience from the moment of our salvation until the day we stand face to face with Christ. We are called to do what? To grow in the grace and knowledge of him. Back in, in, in 1 Peter 2, 2, Peter makes mention of this process by which we grow. I already made mention of it. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. In other words, as your knowledge of God's word grows, it leads you to greater intimacy with Christ. And it will help you stand firm against the wiles of the devil and the heresies of the false teachers. So believers are called to grow in grace and knowledge. And while we all know where this is going, it leads us to our final and fourth point, the center. The center. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I suspect that all of us are familiar with this part of verse 18. It serves as the theme verse of our church. We desire as a church to be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it would seem here that Peter is calling his readers to see Jesus Christ as the very center of all things, the very source and the very object of all knowledge and grace. True grace and knowledge has to point us back to Christ. If it's not, it's not true grace and knowledge. The Apostle John says the same thing with just a slight difference in John 1.14. Maybe you've heard this verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, right? Grace and truth, grace and knowledge. Jesus is at the core. He's the center of everything. And Peter closes the statement with a lengthy confessional title. We just kind of read past it. It's like, what are the key words that define my Jesus? So what does he say? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ. It's a confession. Without getting into great depth, I would simply have you note 
that the three things Peter actually tells us about Jesus. First, he is the Lord, reminding us that he has authority over all things. He is the Savior, meaning he's the only one who can deliver his people from their sins. And third, he is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one who was promised to come. And the idea here is that pursuing an increasing knowledge of the fullness of Christ as Lord, as Savior, and as the promised one, that's what will bring you steadfastness to the truth, the truth that enables you to avoid falling prey to the, the distortions of the false teachers. As we close, let me remind you that believers are to live every day, every moment in dependence upon God. We are to live every day. Listen, every day we are to live like a suitor desiring to get er, to getting to know everything he can about his fiancée. For the believer, our desire is to learn every detail, every doctrine, every love of Christ. Why? He is our bridegroom and the church, the bride. And our bridegroom has said he is coming again. And who is he coming for? The bride. He's coming for us. And he could come at any moment. And so the question now is simply, are you ready? And how do I know that I'm ready? It means that I'm obeying a very simple command. I know I am growing in the grace and knowledge of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I ask you, what is needed to motivate you to a greater desire to learn of Christ and to depend upon Christ? I, I can tell you that what will not greatly motivate you, your own love for him. What needs to motivate you is not me saying, oh, I love you, Jesus, so much. Because 1 John reminds us, 1 John 4.19 reminds us we love because he first loved us. What will motivate you is a reflection upon the great grace by which he loves you. Don't think about what you're able to do for Christ. Constantly be thinking about what Christ has done for you, and that will be your motivation to grow, to dwell on this deep, deep love of Jesus, this eternal, unending, unchanging love coupled with the truth that he's coming back again. That will cause you, motivate you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let us know him. Let us grow in his grace and knowledge. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of this very simple yet deep and profound verse. And I do pray that whatever hinders us from growing or growing more in Christ, reveal those things to us that we may, might confess them, that we might give them over to you that you might, by your spirit, enable us to see victory over those things, that we might invest ourselves in this task of growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. To do that, we pray that you might give us the mind of Christ, the joy of Christ, understand the love of Christ. May that be our motivation. We ask and pray in Jesus' name.